The Danvers statement, I think, is the next thing in your, your little booklet. Let me give you a little background here, and then we're just going to walk through it as a kind of summary of complementarity. The Danvers statement was drafted by me and then reviewed by uh, a committee and published and has been used as the main statement of the Biblical Council on Manhood and Womanhood, which you can go to online. It's an excellent website, Biblical Council on Men, cbmw.org. And uh, if you want to know the counterpoint, uh, Evangelicals for Biblical Equality, if you type that into Google, you'll see their website. So the two evangelical countering views are both there on their websites, Evangelicals for Biblical Equality, the more feminist side, and cbmw.org, the complementarian side. So I've been in on this from the ground level and drafted the document. It got refined in committee, and uh, now it's still used. So this does represent where I am because I wrote it, and not much was changed after I wrote it. So... The first, I don't know if I'll read through this because we've been on rationale for so long. I think I'm going to skip the first parts of the rationale. There may be, there may be one or two that are, um, let me just look and we'll just walk through them here. These are reasons why it matters again, the widespread uncertainty and confusion of our culture and so on. I, I'm going to skip it because otherwise I'm going to get, go so slow we'll never get to the affirmation. So here we are at affirmations in the Danvers Statement. I think there are ten of them. <clears throat> Based on our understanding of biblical teachings, we affirm the following. This is in a little brochure. You can, you can download it from the, from the uh, website of CBMW if you want it. And it tries to summarize what we believe about sexuality and complementarity. Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. So, equal before God as persons. Very, very important statement. Two, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and find an echo in every human heart. Three, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. That's what we're going to take up in just a few minutes and try to defend that from the Bible. Four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationship between men and women. In the home, the, husband, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility. And sin inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate Ministry, So you can see what I mean by the distortions. Those distortions are not the way God made us to be. That's what sin does to the complementarity of headship and submission. 
Number five, the Old Testament as well as the New manifests the equally high value and dignity which God attached <clears throat> attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. Six, redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. So here they are. In the family, husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. In the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted to men. Seven, in all of life, Christ is the supreme authority and guide for men and women so that no earthly submission, domestic, religious, or civil, ever implies a mandate to follow a human authority into sin. Get that? When you call for submission to pastors or submission to husbands or submission to policemen or submission to governors or submission to employer or submission to teacher in school, any of those overarching roles of authority and submission, none of them trumps the absolute authority of Jesus in your life. So that if a husband or a pastor or a teacher or a policeman or a governor says sin, you say no, male or female, because I have a king. My king is my absolute authority, not my husband. My king is my absolute authority, not my teacher, my policeman, my president, or anybody on earth. Jesus is the Lord of my life. And then, in freedom, <coughs> First Peter says, we go back into the authority structures of the world, and we become the best students. When I send my little girl off to Hope Academy, I pray for her regularly every morning. I say, Lord, make Talitha a very a very deeply respectful student for her teachers and deeply loving toward her fellow students. As I pray, got authority structures here. She's like this with students and she's like this with teachers. And I want her to make a name for Jesus by being the most respectful, submissive, supportive, obedient, fully compliant student. But if that teacher said, I want everybody here to uh, recite out loud gay men and gay women and heterosexual men heterosexual women are equally right in their behaviors. I think she used to say, uh, excuse me, but I, I can't say that because that's not true. And she'd say it, I hope, in a submissive way. Jesus is her Lord, and, and the Lord sends her into authority structures, and we should be, we should keep the speed limit. 55, 60, 65, because God sends us into authority structures as Christians. We should stop at stop signs, and we should pay our taxes, and we should fit the structures. That's the way the Bible thinks about us. But if they put up a speed limit, you must go 90, we wouldn't go. That's taking people's life too lightly. Eight, 
In both men and women, a heartfelt sense of call to ministry should never be used to set aside biblical criteria for particular ministries. Rather, biblical teaching should remain the, uh, the authority for testing our subjective discernment of God's will. Pause there. Here's where I've gotten into some of my hottest situations. I've gone to seminaries. I went to Gordon one time, Gordon Seminary, and delivered a series of lectures on manhood and womanhood. Uh, we had a Q&A, and the women went to the microphones, and first one, livid, said, who, who do you think you are telling me what God's call on my life can be? You God? Both men and women, a heartfelt sense of calling to ministry, heartfelt sense of calling to ministry, should never be used to set aside biblical criteria for particular ministries. So if she says, I feel called by the Holy Spirit to be a pastor. You're not God. God is God. Now, I've learned a lot of things in my years of debating people like this. There's some helpful things to do and some unhelpful things to do. And uh, unhelpful would be to say, I just believe the Bible and you don't. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, this book is objective, and I don't think we should let our subjective states govern what it means, but let it define which of our subjective states are valid. What does help, I said, I, I've learned to say this. Any woman who, if you were to stand up now, and some of you may be in this condition, and say to me, I, I feel called to do something that you don't think I should do, what do I do? I would say, I do not want to question your call. I want to question, and I just commend to you to consider this, your read of the accuracy of the call. Now, could it be, not that you're uncalled, that God hasn't moved in your life and stirred you up to love ministry, but that you're interpreting the nature of the ministry differently than the way the voice, the impulse is working. You, you think it's pastor. Could it be that there's an avenue along which those impulses of love and the, the gift of teaching could be exercised in a biblically appropriate way that isn't this. So I don't want to stand up and say, I know you're not called. I just want to say, biblically, I think you need to rethink the avenue along which you believe the call is rightly exercised. Now, that, that has gotten me out of fixes. I mean, they don't agree necessarily that they, they're doing it wrong, but I've at least affirmed, and I really do believe this, this is not just a technique, I do believe that God uh, works in the heart of women to give them a passion for ministry. In fact, I think all women should have a passion for some kind of ministry. And then I think there are some boundaries in the Bible put on what that should be. That's number eight. Number nine, with half the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism. 
with countless lost people in societies that have heard the gospel, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neuroses, loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in the word, in word and deed, need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of his fallen world. Usually, the women who get bent out of shape at me in seminary are women who have have targeted a specific role, and for me to call that role into question is to call their life into question. And I want to say, the possibilities of need meeting in this world are endless. So if a person says to me, which they don't as much anymore, but used to, so if I say, I, I don't think women should be elders, is like, well, what can they do? So, in this, um, uh, in the book, What's the Difference, at the back, I have a, a two-page table with about a hundred ministries where men and women may have at it. Just because these needs are endless. If you have a heart for lost people and a heart for suffering people, you've got a job. A legitimate job, male or female, somewhere in the world. You don't have to watch soaps all afternoon. I promise you. I hope you don't. Any afternoon. <laughs> we are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasingly destructive consequences in our families and churches and culture at large. So that's the Danvers statement, trying to sum up what the, the bigger picture is. And it might be helpful before I launch into the, the Genesis um, defense of saying that male leadership was taught before the fall or was instituted by God before the fall. Let me just give you these definitions that come from the little book, What's the Difference, or the chapter, What's the Difference. The meaning of masculinity. So this is my effort to state an answer for the 10-year-old, which will have to be unpacked big time because the big words in here that a 10-year-old. But when I'm thinking I have to have an answer for what it means to grow up and be a man and not a woman and grow up and be a woman and not a man, these are my answers. And then I unpack them phrase after phrase in that book so, or that chapter. At the heart of mature masculinity. Now stop there. The word heart there is intended to signal this is not an exhaustive definition. Okay? I'm just saying Jewett is partly right. This reality of male and female is imponderably deep. No way could I begin to presume I know what it is to be woman and man to the core in the depths. That These are mysterious and glorious things that I don't think we can put finally into words. 
I just don't think we're left helpless in getting at the heart of what it is. So there's why I use the word heart. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility. Every word in here counts, but I won't stop to unpack every one. I do that in the book. I unpack all these phrases and why I choose sense and why I choose benevolent and why I choose responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships with a woman. So a husband, a pastor, a son, and a mailman don't relate the same way to the woman who answers the door. Husband kisses her. Son runs to the kitchen. Can I have a snack? And so on. Mailman, here's the package. Don't kiss me. There are, there are ways that men are men with women, not their wives, not their parishioners, and it changes, which is why it's so difficult to put into words. A woman that I pass on the street, is there a way to be a man with her, differently than if I were a woman, talking to a person on the telephone? These are... These are delicate issues with nuances and feel and ethos. And in the end, manhood comes out. It's not really reflected. Now, here's a person on the other end. She's a female. I can tell by the voice. I must assume this posture. Well, but nobody lives like that. You just are who you are. And if you've grown up into a mature masculinity, there will be an appropriate demeanor. Meaning of mature femininity. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture, strengthen leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. You'd have your work cut out for you to explain that to an eight-year-old. But you can. You can. When I pray with my little girl, she's 12 now. And we've, I've sat on her bed for 12 years at night, give her a blessing, put my hand on her head, sing to her a little song that we sing together, and uh, pray. I regularly pray this. Lord, uh, grow Talitha up into a mature, godly, strong, intelligent woman who can discern in the men around her who would be worthy of being her spiritual leader. Amen. You see what that builds into her? It builds in the fact that I want her to have a character about her. It's strong. It's who she is. And I want her to know the way you relate to a man in marriage is he's your leader. 
Therefore, choosing him is hugely important. How easy it would be if you just forget all that and say, it's just to be handsome and make a good living and be nice to me or whatever. But you add this component, then women have their work cut out for them. Of course, men do too, but women, I'm just praying her up. I said, Lord, I won't control this in the end. I know I won't. It's not that kind of culture. There is a culture where you can buy, buy a husband or you know, choose, make the marriage happen, but not this one. That's not going to happen. She's going to choose this man, not me. And so my work is being done now at age 12. It won't be done then. And I just pray that she will have a freeing disposition about her to affirm, receive, and nurture. That's a huge word in this definition. Strength and leadership from worthy men. So she's going to have to discern the worth of a man and navigate the premarital appropriate differing relationships and then move into one where she will gladly receive his leadership. Now, the work we have to do here, and I'm governed by the kinds of responses I've gotten over the years to affirming male leadership in, in the home and in the church and a female support for that leadership called submission, uh, many, many people say that is a result of the fall. So you're not presenting what ought to be, you're presenting what is and shouldn't be. This whole hierarchical thing, that came in with the fall and is part of the curse. Your desire shall be for him and he shall rule over you. And you're telling him that's right? And I'm not. So my response to that is to, to look at my Bible and say, are there evidences in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, that this whole issue of male initiative and responsibility and protection and uh, leadership is before the fall, ordained by God, or is there no evidence that male and female before the fall were somehow relating like that? So that's where we're going in the time that remains in this section. Nine, nine evidences in Genesis 1 to 5, that man's leadership is an order of creation, not a result of the fall. An order, a design. It's part of the fabric of the way God set it up when it was good. Number one, the creation of man and woman equally in God's image but with a representative leadership function is implied for the man in this creation. So see if you agree with that in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man. And I know you, most of you can't read Hebrew, but some of you can. You can hold me accountable here. Let us make man, Adam, 
which is translated just generic man. It's also the name of Adam. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, man, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth <coughs> and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That's a singular masculine pronoun. O. Him. Male and female, he created them. Masculine plural pronoun. So my my suggestion there is that doesn't prove anything, but it points, it seems to point, and we'll have to see if it's confirmed, that this use of the word Adam or man or Adam to define them suggests that man has a certain uh, defining role here or priority of being there to... Define the relationship. Two, man is created first and then woman. This is what Paul picks up on in 1 Timothy 2, 13. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. So the fact that God faces a choice, he could do it either way. He could create them simultaneously out of the dust, or he could do it in some order, she first, him first. And the fact that he does it man first, contemplates that, sees by design, he's not done yet. He needs a compliment. He needs a helper and then her. That order is significant to the Apostle Paul. It, it points to me that there's a certain lead role. Man goes ahead into creation. Man will be going ahead in leadership the rest of his life. Three, man is given the moral teaching of the governing or the governing for the governing of the garden to pass on to the woman. So before she's on the scene, God says to him in 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now he gives that mandate to the man, and we never read of God saying it to the woman, and the assumption would be, make sure she knows this, because this is dangerous. You don't eat of that tree, and that's your charge, man. You have been told this, and you'll be given woman soon. Make sure she knows. Four, woman was created from man and presented as a helper suitable or fit for him. This is drawn out, drawn out by Paul in 
1 Corinthians 11, 9 to 10. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a, a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken from man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the two things I'm drawing out here first are she came from man. He was the origin, instead of God creating them both at the same time from, from the soil in some kind of parallel fashion, creates a man, go first, and then he takes the rib out of the side of man. And the context of how he does it is very important. Adam saw, um, for Adam there was no, not found a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God created woman, and he now has a helper suitable for him. The word helper is significant, I think. Partner to join you in the vision God gives you to help you realize this vision. If I use that argument with some, namely that she's created as a helper for him, the response comes back, God is called a helper. So maybe helper means she's the leader and she's the stronger and she's the superior. Now, I regard that kind of response as really cheap. I understand at one surface level why a person might say it, but at a more reflective level, it just seems unworthy of a thoughtful scholar. And here's, here's why. Of course, God is called a helper of his people. The difference is that there's a context here. There's a flow of thought. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, what kind of helper is he talking about? And the first things he does is go to animals. He's not looking for a god here. He's looking for help. Now, this may at first seem very demeaning. Animals. And then woman. But there's a point to it. The point is, this is the kind of help I'm thinking about. You need help. And then he goes through all the animals, and the point is, they're totally the wrong kind of being. They're totally wrong kind of being. But it does point you in the direction that he's thinking. And then he says, we're not going to deal with animals here who are made out of nothing or out of the ground. We're going to go right into you and take part of you. And I'm going to make what you're going to call bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is woman. This is like you. Same nature. Same essence as person. In the image of God. And the point is, she's not an animal. 
He's in a totally different class than an animal. And the reason I went through animals first was to make crystal clear that's not what I'm bringing you. I'm bringing you one like yourself. But the fact that he did it that way shows, doesn't it? He's not bringing him a superior here. He's not, the whole realm of thought is one coming alongside, being an assistant, helping him make things happen. That's number four. Number five, man names woman, Genesis 2:23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman. It just seems to me that naming is a significant leadership function. You name somebody, you have some kind of leadership. We named Talitha, our daughter. And I named our house, put it on the inside of the mailbox. We named Dusty, our new dog. Dusty didn't name us. Talitha didn't name us. And my house didn't name me. Seems like this points in the direction of some kind of leadership. Six, the serpent undermines the roles ordained by God and draws Eve and Adam into a deadly role reversal with God and each other. This is right at the heart of what Paul, I think, was wrestling with when he said uh, it was not the man who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived over in Second, um, 1 Timothy 2. Watch this. See what you think. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, because he's very crafty. That action was an assault on God's order. I used the illustration with the uh, high schoolers a few, a little while ago, that if a colonel in the U.S. Cavalry 200 years ago rides up to a group of Native Americans, and clearly one, because of his regalia, is the chief, and the others are support. And the colonel rides up, and he brings his horse right in line with the second guy, totally ignores the chief and says, I'd like to deal with you. We have a treaty to offer. That's what's going on here, I think. The serpent, and, and the reason I think so is because I think Adam is there. I don't think he's on the other side of the garden. I think he's right there. And I think that... This is one reason. There are two reasons. Um, I'll give you both of them. And she gave also to her husband with her. It doesn't say she showed up, that he showed up. It just says with her. He gave it to her husband with her. He's there. And over here in Genesis 3.17, uh, Then God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. What do you mean listen? What does this listen refer to? She never said a word to Adam. 
in the text anyway. He's just listening. He's just wimping out. That's my read. He's right there, and both of them, I think, at that moment, sin. I think the fall happened before the fruit was eaten. He comes to her and subtly, craftily makes her the spokesman, and she bites. He subtly, craftily ignores the man and puts him in a role of watching, and he bites. And they both go down together as Satan assaults God's order. Let's read the rest of it. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. She's getting things wrong, and he's not correcting her. doesn't say this. It's not in the middle of the garden. doesn't say don't touch it. That's not in the Bible. She's already using language that shows she feels like God is a meanie. And Adam's not correcting her. He's not. He watches this woman going down, and he's going down with her by his passivity. Or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Now, Adam, talk! The whole world is coming down. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God knows in the day you'll eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its food, and she ate, and she also gave to her husband with her. There's not the slightest indication he showed up and had to be persuaded. Like she tricked him. They got tricked together. So when Paul says the woman was deceived and not the man, I think he means the devil targeted her for his direct deception and thus undermined the role structure of male leadership and female support for that. And from the moment he did that, it came apart. And, and the, the application in First Timothy is, if you start putting women in the role as teachers and authoritative leaders in the church, the same thing will happen here. It might mean, so I want to be careful here, it might mean what historically it's been taken to mean, namely that women are more gullible. It might mean that over in First Timothy 2, that she was deceived, not Adam. But as I read this, <laughs> Adam's not doing his job. And he doesn't have to be rationally persuaded to eat. He's crashing and burning at the same time as Eve. He's just watching it happen.
passively, and she's doing the engagement with the deceiver, and in that sense is the deceived one most directly. So my interpretation of this is that Satan knows what I'm trying to prove, and he hates it. Namely, that before the fall, God had established man as the leader, woman as the helper who's going to link arms with him and in her very gifts and skills, partner with him to get the job done in the world. And Satan sees that. And he says, I'm going to ruin that and bring the whole world down with it. Oops, we saw that already. Seventh observation in Genesis. God calls the man to account first. This is one of the clearest evidences. Some of the others are more vague, and they're just little pointers, and cumulatively, they have a great effect, I think. They do for me. This one does all by itself. Genesis 3, so the fall has happened, and they, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. That's what happens when sin reigns. You, you, you become self-conscious and shamed because there's a dissonance between what you are and what you present yourself to be. You're, the coherence and, and integrity of life has been shredded by doing what you know you shouldn't have done. And now what once was so innocent and so clean and so pure is now, I'm naked. And God, God says, uh, they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? So the woman is the initial spokesman, seemingly drawing Adam in, and God does not operate on that priority. He turns it right around when he calls them to account, and he goes to Adam first. Where are you, Adam? I got an issue with you, Adam. I mean, wouldn't, if you were Adam, you'd say, you've got an issue with her, which is what he said. <laughs> you gave me this woman. But God wouldn't have it. So I, I love, I've said it a dozen times in the last 25 years, that if Noel and I are having a problem, and one of us is sinning, say Noel is sinning this time, and she's messing up the family because of her hard-heartedness or whatever, <laughs> and I'm having a struggle with it and sh Jesus knocks on the door and Noel goes to the door and opens it I believe what Jesus will say to her is uh, hello Noel is John home? You need to talk to him I'll wait go get him now why would he do that? it's her problem <laughs> she, she's got the problem here. No. 
I'm always accountable in this family. I've got to take steps to fix everything. I have no rights whatever to back into the corner and say, my wife's got a problem, she can fix it. Or my wife's got issues, I'm, I'm not, it's not my fault. That Jesus won't have it. He's going to say, come here. Now, before we deal with Noel, we'll deal with Noel. I want to know what you've done. Tell me how you've worked on this. You prayed? You've been reading your Bible? How you been treating her? Just coming out of maybe any 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 need not being met in Noel? And just she's gonna, he's going to walk through a long list with my role as leader in this family before Noel gets addressed to make sure I have taken the kinds of initiatives I should have taken in this family, if possible, to head that off. And when he's done and I'm on my face repenting, then he'll go Noel and deal with that. So that's what he does. He he says, Adam, where are you? Number eight. This is complicated. Put on your thinking cap, okay? In Genesis 3.16, says, To the woman he says, God, bring it down the curse now. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, a lot of people historically have taken that to be a mandate. So, sin is going to make her hot for her husband, and the man is going to come down on her with authority. And so authority is built into the fall. It comes from the fall. And so for me to make a case that authority is rooted in pre-fall created order, they would say, goes against this verse. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think it's a mandate at all. I think this is a, a curse that shouldn't happen. She, she shouldn't do this, and he shouldn't do this. Now, here's why I think it means that. Yeah, I know you can't read that, but one or two of you may be able to. But I need to show you a parallel. And for your husband, this is just that again, for your husband, your desire, and he shall rule over you. What is this desire and this rule? Genesis 4, 6, parallel. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Now that analogy, that, that language is so close. I feel like this cannot be a, this cannot be an accident. So you've got the you got it in Genesis three sixteen, and you've got it in Genesis four six. Here it's addressed to the woman. And here it's addressed to Cain. And the, what's the meaning? Cain, sin is crouching at the door like a lion. Its desire is for you. This is not hot. This lion doesn't want sex. He wants rule. He wants on you to consume you and be dominant over you. He wants to conquer you. I think that's what that means. Your desire will be for your husband means your desire will be to control him. But you must rule over it. It's not going to happen. He says for Cain it shouldn't happen. And here he says... You shall rule over that. That is going to happen. And it's a curse. So two things are going to happen that shouldn't happen. 
That's what the result of sin is. One, she's going to desire to be like sin, crouching at the door, to always be controlling this guy. And he, being stronger, is going to use his macho either to just go passive and watch TV, drink beer, and have chips, and then want sex at 10. Ain't going to work. Or he's going to smack her around. And God has a better idea. That's a curse. That's not a mandate. That's not what ought to be. I conclude tonight with this one. God named man and woman man. I think this is why it's good for man and woman to have the same last name and for it to be a man's. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man. So those nine pointers suggest to me that before the fall, God had the idea that there should be primary responsibility for leadership of the man. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you take what we've shared here, cause it to go down, be understood, be appropriately embraced, and then bring us back together, I pray, in the morning so that we may continue this study and grant us a submissive spirit towards your word and help me to be faithful to it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.